Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Elena Dohan. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on Unilateral Coercive Measures and Human Rights. Unilateral Coercive Measures, also known as sanctions. Elena Dohan, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure for me. You have just returned from a trip to Syria. And uh, upon your return, you issued a call for an end to sanctions that have been imposed on Syria, which you say have been suffocating the Syrian people. Talk to us about what you saw on your visit and what the scope of these U.S.-led sanctions on Syria are and how they uh, impact people's lives inside Syria. Indeed, that's a very broad question. So first of all, it's necessary to mention that that's not only the U.S., but a number of other actors which are imposing sanctions on Syria. We are speaking about sanctions of the European Union. We are spe speaking about sanctions of Canada, as well as of other countries. So at the very end, uh, Syria faces an extremely broad scope of sanctions imposed by a multiple actors, which quite often are overlapping with each other, but sometimes they are imposed by a single country only. And at the very end, we're speaking about individual sanctions, so targeted sanctions, but which are imposed ex officio over every higher state official. So every minister becomes designated as soon as he or she is appointed as a minister. That basically means that any third actor is scared to deal with anything having to do with the public sector of Syria, even if we speak about the cultural field. There are sanctions which are imposed uh, on the trade of oil, uh, as well as many other areas, including, for example, the aircraft and so forth. And uh, there is a prohibition to do any financial transactions with Syria or Syrians. So one of the more main challenges which I have heard about that not a single individual, um, as well as no one from the private sphere is able to transfer money to Syria or from Syria because of these financial impediments, taking into account that all public banks, as well as two of private banks, which used to deal with international trade, are designated by sanctions. And uh, naturally, I have been reported that starting from the moment when Caesar Act sanctions have been imposed, which... Uh, uh, basically provide for the possibility to designate anyone who participates in reconstruction of Syria, terms reconstruction and rebuilding became the most scary for anyone dealing with Syria. That's why any humanitarian work is uh, currently going on about the emergency humanitarian response rather than recovery or reconstruction of the infrastructure as well as any other critical area. Uh, as concerns the general situation in Syria, it's necessary to take into account that we are not speaking about the impact of unilateral sanctions only. We are speaking about a country which has been enormously affected by 12 years of hostilities, military hostilities on its territory. The report reflects the level of destruction uh, of uh, critical infrastructure on the territory of Syria, primarily due to the hostilities. There are reports, for example, that these hostilities destroyed around 80 to 90% of uh, um, railway infrastructure, 
around 90% of irrigation infrastructure. Similar situation is happening to other critical spheres of infrastructure, like for example, water supply or electricity supply. But besides all that, uh, sanctions, broad sanctions, started to be imposed on Syria in 2011 already. That basically means that from 2011, besides of affecting infrastructure as well as various spheres of economy of Syria due to military hostilities, economy as well as infrastructure is also affected by unilateral sanctions. That means that for 12 years, Syria is left on its own as concerned the maintenance of the infrastructure which has not been affected by hostilities, trying to repair with no spare parts available, no equipment available, and very little of reagents available. So what does this mean in practice? Today, electricity is very, access to electricity is very limited in Syria. In majority of cities, uh, people have access to electricity either two or four hours per day only, regardless day, night or night, uh, daytime or nighttime. Uh, hospitals are prioritized and hospital has have access to electricity 10 to 11 hours per day. That's definitely not sufficient, especially when we speak about the urgent surgeries or storage of the med uh, vaccines as well as uh, medicines, which need to be stored cold. So even um, some hospitals don't have 24-hour electricity? Do they use a generator when the electricity some is- Some of them do. Uh, some of them do, but there are a few problems. So first of all, generators are also not freely available because no one wants to procure anything to Syria. Some generators are brought to Syria via humanitarian aid, naturally with hospitals prioritized, but not all hospitals have generators. Point number two, to be able to keep generators, you need to have fuel. And fuel is another huge disaster in Syria currently. Um, the shortage of fuel is so enormous that uh, the Syria is currently able to produce less than one-tenth of what it really needs. It imports certain amount from Iran, although tanker, Iranian tankers are repeatedly saturated and stopped, preventing delivery of this uh, fuel to Syria. Also but bombed. This, uh, uh, I'm sorry to correct you, but some of these tankers coming from Iran are also bombed by Israel. That's been happening on top of being stopped. Th that's also the case, uh, but we can speak about other cases of disruption where they are just arrested or the captains of these tankers are designated as terrorists as right. well. So at the very end, the shortage of fuel is terrible right now. I have been reported about enormous problems, not with electricity only, but with heating as well. And uh, uh, for example, every family is entitled to get uh, around 50 liters of subsidized fuel that only suffice to keep the family warm for two weeks. But they are entitled to get these 50 liters for the whole year. And all the rest can only be bought at the black market at much higher price. And the majority of people can't afford that because more than 90% of population are considered below to be below poverty line. 
So as for hospitals, even if a hospital has a generator and even if it manages to buy fuel, although, for example, as for fuel, a number of NGOs reported that they buy fuel at the black market and provide it to the hospitals to keep generators functioning. Hospitals can't ever doing it on the, its own. So even in the hospitals, when the electricity switches off, transfer from the regular electricity to a generator uh, causes the jump in the electricity. And that means that the equipment has at least a second shutdown. And due to these shutdowns, lots of equipment uh, disrupts its functioning and uh, it's affected enormously as well. So hospitals are reporting to having terrible problems about buying equipment, maintaining equipment, buying spare parts, paying for the simplest medicine, like, for example, uh, catheters, uh, and uh, keeping the equipment functioning. I know this might not be in your uh, purview, given your focus is on the impact of uh, sanctions, but did you get a sense of what the impact is of the U.S. military occupying one-third of Syria, where uh, the bulk of Syria's oil is, and how that is impacted? Uh, the fuel crisis inside of Syria? Well, this issue goes beyond the mandate, but what I reflected in my report, that one of the reasons why Syria is short of fuel is that the fact that it doesn't control the sphere where the, um, it used to use to get oil. And uh, unfortunately, the same situation happens in the sphere of food provision because the same sphere was used, the same territory was used for agriculture mo mostly. So northeast and northwest are the most uh, useful agricultural lands. And unfortunately now, especially when we, we speak about the problems with water supply. So it's also very important. 51% of Syrian people are considered to be food insecure. Food insecure means that they, means, they, they miss meals. So they skip meals, that the food basket is very poor, that they do not use protein at all or nearly do not use protein. And more than 2.5 million people are considered to be severe food insecure. That means that they skip days of meal, not meals, just days of meal as such. And uh, agriculture is another problem due to the fact that a part of territory which used to be used for agricultural purposes is not controlled by the government right now. It's under control of other forces, so they can't use it. And secondly, that the possibility of irrigation of the territory controlled by the government is also enormously affected because irrigation system has been affected enormously and in order to restore the irrigation system, it's necessary, first of all, to have a stable electricity supply to enable water pumps to function. Secondly, it's necessary to restore the in physical infrastructure as such, what is very complicated in the face of inavailability of spare parts and availability of equipment. And thirdly, it's necessary to restore the system of control over water quality. Because unfortunately, due to the destruction, sewage and uh, irrigation system and due to the shortage of water are sometimes mixed. That basically ended up 
in uh, cholera outbreak, which is currently observed in Syria. And maybe if I could ask you to speak briefly about what the state uh, of Syria's healthcare system was uh, before the uh, war began in uh, 2011. The, uh, the World Health Organization in 2015 said that before the war, Syria had one of the best developed healthcare systems in the Arab world. I received the same information and naturally I try to collect information from all these sources and uh, I also talk to people. I talk to doctors, I talk to patients. So the all the reports are absolutely the same that the uh, healthcare system was very much developed. It included not only hospitals, it also included lots of smaller clinics where you can uh, get basic treatments. So the uh, clinics were in the reasonable distance. And moreover, there was a public sector medical care system and the private sector medical care system. What we are currently observing is the situation that medical system is very much affected. Um, first of all, it's affected by hostilities, military hostilities. So lots of clinics are physically destroyed together with its equipment. So several hospitals had to move to the buildings of regular clinics, which are not uh, formed. So they are not structured to have a real hospital there. So they are not structured to have surgery there, to have uh, intensive therapy there. That's why it's necessary to have a uh, lot of financing for reconstruction and uh, rearrangement of this regular clinic to the real hospitals. Problem number two, what is currently observed that there was no possibility to buy new medical equipment. Any new medical equipment which currently comes to Syria is mostly coming via deliveries of humanitarian aid. Some of them are coming via INGOs and via the UN agencies activities. But unfortunately, the number of the equipment uh, which has been delivered via humanitarian aid or is very low in comparison with the needs of Syrian people. Problem number three, it's not possible to repair the existing equipment because the majority of equipment has been produced in Europe. So European uh, producers reject to sell spare parts or pro to provide post-sale service, um, post service for this equipment. It's another challenge. Uh, Problem number four, Syria used to be one of the hugest producers of pharmaceuticals. So basically Syria used to be pretty self-sufficient in the sphere of production of pharmaceuticals. What's happening yeah. today is first of all, that equipment is old. So production lines are old now and uh, they are not, it's not possible to buy spare parts. And problem number two, lots of raw materials for production of pharmaceuticals used to be bought from Europe. And it's not possible to do it any longer. That's why currently- Because of the what, sanctions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, producers say, no, we do not want to sell anything to Syria, both to public and even to private sector. I received reports from INGOs that they face enormous problems trying to get exception licenses to deliver medicine and to deliver humanitarian aid to Syria. Something is coming, but it's much lower than it's necessary. 
And uh, there is another problem due to the terrible economic situation. So 90% of people are below poverty line. People who used to get services in the private sector of healthcare move to public sector because they can't pay any longer. And that means that the burden of a public sector is much higher than it used to be before. And the, another problem is that due to the same economic situation, um, salary of doctors appeared to be enormously low. So I asked in several hospitals and I have been reported that, for example, the salary of the head of the hospital is $40 per month. Per month. Uh, and uh, it's not sufficient to cover anything. The basic minimal food basket uh, for the family of four is ninety around $90 today. So basically the head of the hospital can't buy even food for its family for the full-time jobs. The salary of uh, doctors is naturally lower. In such situation, there is an enormous brain drain of doctors. I was visiting hospitals and I could see that the majority of doctors are either of retiring age or extremely young. So the most pro highly professional staff has left the country or moved to private sector or moved to any other sort of, of activities. And I have been reported, for example, that for the severe surgeries, so for complicated surgeries, there are only two anesthesiologists around the whole country. Um, when I was in Syria, uh, I heard stories and, and there have been uh, reports on this and occasionally in the US media of uh, doctors having to smuggle in parts to fix um, equipment that they can't legally replace because of the sanctions. Did you hear any stories of, of that happening? Well, in my report, I write about the situation when people or doctors or any other actors have to use alternative means to deliver spare parts. So basically, no one wants to say about the ways in order they are not stopped. But I have heard lots of stories that... Uh, or we managed to get this spare part to fix this uh, equipment. For example, that specific case I'm referring to is the cardio equipment in the public hospital to put cardio clappers, uh, which is the only one functioning. We managed to get this specific necessary spare part from a private donor, and no one knows how it came to the country. So I'm sure that uh, some of that uh, presumes smuggling because smuggling, unfortunately, is one of the hugest challenges happening currently in Syria because many goods can't be delivered directly due to the sanctions or the fear of sanctions or impossibility of bank transfers. So lots of people do smuggling and uh, goods, uh, lots of goods are bought at the black market. You mentioned that uh, there have been sanctions imposed on Syria uh, since the start of the dirty war. Uh, those sanctions intensified in 2019 when the U.S. Uh, passed something called the Caesar Act, uh, which made it 
a lot easier for the U.S. to sanction not just Syria, but anybody doing any kind of transaction with, with Syria. And I want to go to a clip of Joel Rayburn, who was uh, the special envoy under President Trump uh, for Syria and very involved in designing uh, the Caesar sanctions. And this is a clip of him bragging about how the sanctions basically lowered the bar for the U.S. to go after anybody doing any kind of trade with Syria. So this is what he said. Sanctions normally, you know, for those who, who worked um, in, in the government have had experience with sanctions, oftentimes there can be a very high hurdle for the evidence uh, that, you have to, uh, that you have to gather in order to uh, uh, prove legal sufficiency under certain sanctions authorities. Um, the Caesar Act really lowers the bar for us. Uh, we don't have to prove, for example, that a company that's going in to do a reconstruction project in the Damascus region um, is dealing directly with uh, the Assad regime. We don't have to have the evidence to prove that link. We just have to have the evidence that proves that a company or an individual is investing in that sector, in the construction sector, the engineering sector, um, most of the aviation sector, finance sector, uh, energy sector, and, and so on. So that's Joel Rayburn, uh, former uh, senior U.S. official under Trump dealing with Syria, uh, bragging about how easy it is for the U.S. to sanction anybody doing any kind of transaction with Syria. And he names all the sectors, the energy sector, construction se uh, sector, the finance sector. So talk to us about how this plays out inside Syria and, and, and what this does to Syria's ability to reconstruct from a, a, a catastrophic decade-long war. Well, as I had mentioned at the very beginning, the word reconstruction or rebuilding is uh, taboo words for any interlocutor dealing with Syria. What I have observed in Syria, people of this country, they need to rebuild nearly every sphere of critical infrastructure in the country. They have no water, no electricity, no normal access to medical care, no normal access to education, no roads, no transport, no real industry, no normal possibility for the jobs. And to be able to get all this back, it's necessary to rebuild the infrastructure, it's necessary to rebuild financial system, industrial system, to get back their jobs. And uh, unfortunately, what's happening today, um, all civil society actors and all actors which are involved into uh, delivery of humanitarian aid, uh, they are very scared to use the word reconstruction because or rebuilding because they are scared that they will be listed as companies or people violating sanctions regime. So what's finally happening, um, they are mostly allowed to get engaged into the emergency assistance. So to deliver medicine for today, not to rebuild the pharmaceutical sphere, but to deliver medicine uh, for to settle the problem today to give some medicine to people. As concerns, for example, reconstruction of water supply, uh, it doesn't work like that. Uh, possibility to buy new pumps or build up new water pumps is not possible at all. So maximum, any humanitarian deliveries help to keep the existing water pumps functioning. 
to get a few spare parts to keep them today for today. And I believe that the hugest problem uh, which affects people, and I would cite a series of my interlocutors, which basically say that because of impossibility to rebuild the critical infrastructure and to get back job, uh, jobs, it's not only affecting human rights of people, it's killing the hope. So the phrase where some of the interlocutors um, said a very shocking phrase. They said that during the war, they were seeing how people were dying. Now they see how people are dying and how the hope is dying as well. So unfortunately, um, situation, humanitarian situation in Syria is becoming worse despite all efforts. And uh, unfortunately, all statements about 1.5 billion of humanitarian aid delivered, delivered to the country um, is not helping to settle this situation. To have a normal salary, you need to have a normal job. To be able to buy food, you need to have this food available in the country. Same for having a water. Because, for example, water is not available all time. Even in the hugest cities, you may have water like two, three hours, once per three, five days. And it's a good case. For the remote areas, you as for the drinking water, you may get drinking water bought by the truck in the best case. But due to the insufficiency of fuel, sending a truck is very expensive. And not on people can effort water. Now winter is coming. And winters in Syria are very cold in some regions with snow, with minus temperature, and with unavailability of fuel, with unavailability of heating it's not possible to function. When I was traveling around Syria, I saw many uh, trees being cut off. That's done by people to heat themselves to cook some food because they are cutting off all the green part uh, in order to be able to provide at least the warm food. And some um, people just, I talked to many women, to many women which are, currently cheer the family they say they tell me such a strange inventions uh, using a little bit of paper in order to warm a little bit of house and to keep this warm so they put it in the metal pot and they put the uh, like paper burn this paper and keep this uh, metal pot warm for a while to warm the place where they live in not even mentioning the fact that um, lots of people do not have a normal shelter, taking into account that lots of buildings are destroyed during the military hostility. The possibility for reconstruction of this building is very complicated. So people live in half-destroyed buildings without windows, without heating, without war, uh, water. Even in schools, there is no water, so students can't go to the toilet. Naturally, students can't wash their face uh, and their hands because there is no water. And plus, we need to take into account that there are lots of internally displaced persons, lots Alana, of sorry. which are children. Sorry, if a student can't go to the bathroom at school, what, what do they do? I mean, these are kids. Um, 
nothing. They are waiting until the end of the school time so that they go outside of the school. Hopefully they have the possibility to go to the toilet at home. But quite often there is no possibility for sanitation at home as well. Okay. And sorry, you were mentioning that there's also a lot of internally displaced people. So many of these people, they uh, lost their documents. Many of them are unaccompanied children. So the problem of street children is enormous as well. The problem of illiterate children and illiterate youth is enormous. So upon the latest reports which I received, after 12 years of military hostilities, number of uh, the level of illiteracy rise from 5% before 2011 up to 22 or maybe even 44%. So I do not have the specific figure because uh, take into account that many people are on the territories which are not controlled uh, by the government. Many people uh, escape, migrated to the neighboring countries, so no one knows the exact number of uh, children and youths uh, who are illiterate and there are huge problems now even to teach these uh, people to read and to write to get them basic knowledge and many of these street children have uh, no the slightest idea about the ethics so they are easily involved into criminal activity sexual exploitation prostitution and many other sorts uh, which are not supposed to be uh, applied to the life of children. The Syrian government has subsidies for people for uh, food and for fuel. Um, how far do these subsidies go in uh, mitigating the uh, impact of the war and the sanctions? As concerns the information which I have received, subsidies help to a certain extent, but they do not help enormously. Uh, for the, the first problem is a very high level of inflation, especially after 2019. For example, for the period of 2011 to 2018, inflation was around tenfold. So Syrian pound, it, it was around 50 Syrian pounds per one US dollar in 2010. And it was around 500 of Syrian pounds to one US dollar in 2019. Now it's more than 5,000 Syrian pounds per one US dollar in 2022. And the prices are increasing every day. Uh, due to that situation, the amount of revenue uh, in the budget is lower, every year lower than it used to be. Uh, I got information about the budget and I see that there are attempts to increase the share of uh, budget uh, used for health issues or used, for example, for educational issues or for food issues. But anyway, it's not enough. Uh, the government has introduced a sort of the, um, it's called uh, smart cut, 
for people to provide for some sort of subsidies. Uh, I have been reported about around 4 million of these smart cards, one of uh, each of uh, which is used for one household, so for several people. Uh, basically, this smart card provides for the possibility to buy uh, bread, sugar, and uh, a few other items, as well as certain amount of gasoline and certain amount of uh, fuel for heating at the subsidized price. But it, uh, for example, bread is uh, much cheaper than the cost to produce bread, around 14 times cheaper than the cost of its production. But unfortunately, it's not sufficient anyway, and uh, now the government is decreasing the uh, number of people it tries to provide with subsidies. So I have been reported about the changing system of subsidies trying to help the poorest groups of people because what's happening now is not enough. But uh, as concerns the other subsidized goods, as uh, for example, the fuel, uh, the subsidized fuel, so 50 liters of subsidized fuel, um, at the subsidized price is not affordable for many people. So basically the poorest group of people sell its subsidized quota to someone else for a little bit more money to buy them food. Ugh. There is a subsidized uh, gasoline, but 25 liters of subsidized gasoline costs around 62,000 of Syrian pounds. And the average salary is 120,000 uh, Syrian pounds. So basically you can buy uh, 50 liters of subsidized uh, gasoline for the whole salary. And that means that many people do not buy this gasoline. Same for the fuel, people usually buy this fuel, but not all of them can afford buying that. Similar situation exists in the sphere of food. So unfortunately, these subsidies can't be used by everyone. First of all, uh, many NGOs, and I speak uh, not about um, international NGOs, but by the national NGOs, as well as, for example, faith-based organizations, as well as churches, are engaged into distribution of food. So just doing sandwiches and giving it to every school child. Or doing sandwiches, doing like a warm kitchen where they are able to provide like a warm meal to anyone who, who comes uh, a few times per week so that it makes it possible for people to survive. Most people in uh, the NATO states that are imposing these sanctions, especially the US, uh, won't even have heard of the sanctions on Syria and their impact. But, but, many, but more people have heard of the sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s that had a huge impact. And that's when Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State, said that, that the price was worth it to kill tens of thousands of children under US-led sanctions. And I'm just wondering, from your understanding, from your understanding, how do the uh, U.S.-led sanctions on Syria compared to those that were imposed on Iraq back in the 1990s? That's a very, un let's say, uneasy question, taking into account that uh, I didn't have a purpose to compare the scope and the impact. 
one of the problems we are currently facing is the absence of methodology to assess sanctions. So basically my mandate is the only um, body within the United Nations which intends to assess the impact of unilateral sanctions on specific countries plus the impact of overcompliance with unilateral sanctions on specific countries. Currently, I try to develop a methodology for monitoring and assessment and to hopefully if it will be fixed at the level of the UN organs, uh, hopefully other UN organs will start to do this monitoring and we will have a more precise data. Uh, I can't speak about the impact of sanctions on Iran, but I can speak about the impact of sanctions on Syria. Uh, what I observed is that all human rights of people are enormously affected. So I understand that the time for interview is limited, but if you ask me about every single specific human rights, I can give you the facts and figures about the effect on that. I could observe that the right to food, right to health and right to life are enormously affected. People do not live in dignity if they live in poverty. People do not live in dignity if they can't get access to proper medical care. People die because of that. We'll give the simplest example, cancer. Cancer is known to everyone and understandable to everyone. To be able to treat cancer properly, you need to be able to diagnose it early. And when I was visiting the Onco Hospital in rural Damascus, so the main Onco Hospital in the whole country, and asked, what is the line for regular CT scanner to be able to diagnose the existence of cancer? And the response was six months. So even if a person comes at the early stage after six months, the stage is not early already. And unfortunately, there is no- So it takes six, so sorry, it takes six months to get a CT scan. Yes. Yes. Uh, and if the CT scanner is working, because I've heard stories of doctors having to smuggle in parts yes. to use their CT scanner because that equipment is, is under US sanctions. Yes, indeed. Moreover, there is even more complicated situation for MRI. Uh, I visited several hospitals. They said that they only have low, in, let's say, low-sensitive MRI, very old, and they can they are using it for brain MRI only. They can't do the whole body or other parts of the body MRI, and it's low-sensitive. Basically, current ones are like ten times more sensitive than the ones they have. Similar situation comes, for example, to PET CT scanners. I was reported that there are only two PET CT scanners in the whole country, and both of them are in private hospitals. That means that the majority of people can't effort pain having PET CT scanners, and any attempts to deliver PET CT scanner at least one to the public hospital by international organizations uh, didn't succeed so far. And that's only one example. I can give example about other diseases as well. Well, please go ahead. Uh, let's speak about dialysis. Uh, diabetes, 
many other diseases. So I've visited hospitals in situation about the dialysis. There are lots of people with kidney problems who are in need for dialysis every second or every third day of their life. Uh, hospitals face problems with uh, the equipment. Equipment is extremely old. Uh, there are problems to buy spare part. They try to repair this equipment from the pieces of other equipment. And it's still a huge challenge. So basically, many patients have to are getting the dialysis once per week instead of having it every second day. That means that the health state and quality of life are deteriorating. In some situations, the only choice is to go to the private hospital, but people can't afford to go to the private hospital. Similar situation comes to diabetes to get uh, higher quality medicine, and uh, it's about thalassemia, it's about uh, epilepsy, and many other diseases. Medicine are not available. Uh, as concerns, uh, for example, uh, uh, hospitals, many of them are reporting that they can't sometimes manage to buy, to procure even cassettes, so things which are very, very simple and they request patients to find and buy a cassetter and to bring the cassetter with them. So if the, the hospitals manage to get medicine via humanitarian aid, they can't get a cassetter to put the medicine in the body of the patients. Um, we heard earlier uh, a clip from a, a senior Trump official who was very involved in pushing through the Caesar sanctions on Syria, um, Joel Rayburn. So I want to turn now just to show how bipartisan this policy is. The Caesar Act was passed overwhelmingly by the U.S. Congress and it was bipartisan. So this is Dana Struhl, who is a senior uh, Pentagon official under Biden, uh, speaking back in 2019 about how the U.S. military occupation of one-third of Syria, where its oil and wheat reserves are, coupled with the U.S. sanctions, uh, gives what Struhl calls the U.S. Tr uh, tremendous leverage over, over Syria. So this is what Dana Struhl said back in 2019. The United States still had compelling forms of leverage on the table to shape an outcome that was more conducive and protective of U.S. interests. And we identified four. So the first one was the one-third of Syrian territory that was owned via the U.S. military with its local partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, this was a light footprint on the U.S. military, only about 1,000 troops over the course of the Syria Study Group's report. And then the tens of thousands of, of forces, both Kurdish and Arab, under the Syrian Democratic Forces. And that one-third of Syria is the resource-rich, it's the economic powerhouse of Syria. So where the hydrocarbons are, which obviously is very much in the public debate here in Washington these days, as well as the agricultural powerhouse. But we argued that it wasn't just about this one third of Syrian territory that the US military and our military presence owned, both to fight ISIS and also as leverage for affecting the, the overall political process for the broader Syrian conflict. There were three other areas of leverage. One is political and diplomatic isolation of the Assad regime. So holding the line on diplomatic isolation, preventing embassies from going back into Damascus. Two is the economic sanctions architecture. So some of this is part of the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration on Iran, but there's a whole suite of both executive and congressional sanctions on Syria and Bashar al-Assad, both for human rights abuses in Syria and to the backers of Assad for their activities on support, in support of him in Syria. 
and three was reconstruction aid. So the United States remains the overall largest single donor of humanitarian aid to Syrians both inside Syria and refugees outside of Syria. And there was some stabilization assistance in the part of Syria that was liberated from ISIS and controlled via the Syrian Democratic Forces in northern eastern Syria. The rest of Syria, though, it is, is rubble. And what the Russians want and what Assad wants is economic reconstruction. Um, and that is something that the United States can basically hold a card on via the international financial institutions and our cooperation with the Europeans. So we argued that absent behavioral changes by the Assad regime, we should hold the line on preventing reconstruction aid and technical expertise from going back into Syria. So that is Dana Struhl. She is uh, now a senior Pentagon official responsible for the Middle East under Joe Biden. That was her speaking back in October 2019. So Elena Dohan, as the UN expert on sanctions, having just visited Syria, I have two questions. First of all, are these sanctions legal under international law? Does the U.S. have the right to impose sanctions that, as this U.S. official brags, are holding the line on reconstruction, preventing Syria from rebuilding from this catastrophic war. And have you had any contact with the US government? Is anybody there interested in hearing from you about the impact of the sanctions that they're imposing on Syria? Well, the issue of legality is one of the, my main concerns as a mandate holder. And uh, as a professor of international law, I always try to call states to behave in accordance with international law. And uh, I, I'm absolutely sure that uh, the we won't speak so much about humanitarian impact of unilateral sanctions if uh, many of them will disappear after states will start to behave uh, in the legal term. So from the point of international law, the only mechanism of imposing sanctions is the mechanism which is provided by the UN Charter, Chapter 7 of which and Articles 24 and 25 provide for the exceptional powers of the UN Security Council. So basically that the UN Security Council who can decide to impose sanctions in the case of the breach of peace, threat of peace, peace, threat to peace or an act of aggression. International law also provides for the possibility to use unfriendly acts, so-called retortions, to influence the behavior of other states. But it's necessary to take into account that Taking unfriendly act means that this unfriendly act shall still be legal under international law. I will give an example. If a state doesn't like the behavior of another state, it may decide to stop diplomatic relations or to reduce the diplomatic presence in the country. It's unfriendly, it imposes certain level of pressure, but it's legal. Or state, for example, may decide to not to conclude an international treaty governments have discussed before. It's un uh, unfriendly, but it's still legal. There is also a mechanism of countermeasures. States are entitled to, to violate international law in response to the previous violation of international law. But this violation shall be, first of all, uh, done by the directly affected states, Secondly, they shall be in response to the previous violation by the perpetrator. They shall be proportionate to the violation necessary. So the only means to push the perpetrator to restore uh, international, its international obligations. 
it shouldn't violate uh, principles of international law and it shouldn't violate fundamental human rights. If one looks at the international obligations being uh, affected by the use of unilateral sanctions, the least of those is enormous. Uh, in the video you have just shown, there was a reference to diplomats, for example, being prevented to go back to Damascus. Uh, there are lots of uh, diplomats face very serious challenges uh, to function in uh, countries outside of Syria, starting from the point that diplomatic missions can't keep the bank accounts being open. Diplomats face challenges to have bank accounts to get insurance of their health insurance or insurance to the diplomatic premises. And as a result, their mission is affected. So that means we observe clear violations of diplomatic law because the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations clearly provides that the host country is obliged to enable the diplomatic mission to exercise its functions. Similar situation exists uh, when the limitations for traveling of diplomats are imposed. So that's one sphere. We all can also speak about violation of trade or investment agreements. We can speak about violation of uh, principles of international law. For example, announcing uh, that the situation in another state constitutes a state of emergency, what's used by the United States to impose sanctions over a country is violation of the principle of sovereign equality. Announcing a state to be a state-sponsored terrorism, it's violation of the principle of sovereign equality of states. We can clearly observe violation of principles of peaceful settlement of international disputes, principles of, uh, for example, non-intervention to domestic affairs of states, as well as many other norms of international law. For example, freezing assets of central banks, as well as of public institutions, is a clear violation of the immunities judicial immunities of states and state property. Uh, designation of higher state official just ex officio is a non-selective punishment. So these people are not accused in committing any crime. So therefore, uh, uh, the majority of unilateral sanctions, besides, for example, breaking of diplomatic relations uh, or deciding not to engage in future cooperation, uh, are illegal from the point of international law. From my state uh, side, I was uh, uh, sending repeatedly communications to many countries, including the United States, the European Union, as concerned the information which I received from the um, various stakeholders within the scope of my mandate. So I can't go and analyze all spheres of international law. As a mandate holder, I need to focus on the impact on human rights when it happened due to sanctions. I need to say that, for example, I receive quite often responses from the countries of the European Union or the businesses of the European Union when I send their communication, but I never received a single response from the side of the United States, although a number of communications have been sent. I also did my best to have a discussion with the US and I forwarded several requests for a country visit to the US. So I would be happy to do a country visit and to analyze the functioning of the legislation and functioning of all institutions engaged in the process of decision making and decision implementation on unilateral sanctions. Uh, but I need to say that I didn't even receive no 
I didn't receive any response mm. to my requests. Similar situation, unfortunately, happens when I try to talk. So my request for a discussion are usually not responded. And uh, upon my opinion, we can never find a solution without a dialogue. And I do not see the, let's see, readiness for the dialogue with my mandate from the side of the United States. Although I keep on trying. Yes. And I know that Congress, every time there's been efforts, proposals to look at the impact of U.S. sanctions, including on Syria, that those have been rejected. And uh, what to say about that, except um, I, I really uh, appreciate your time, Elena Dohan, and I really appreciate you putting out this report. And I hope that uh, more media outlets, especially in the NATO world, will um, interview you because I think what you found on your trip to Syria is will not be known by most people what is being done in their name and how uh, consequential these sanctions are to ordinary civilians who have nothing to do uh, with uh, the Syrian government. Whatever you feel about the Syrian government, it's obviously, as you say in your report, it's 90% of Syria is living below the poverty line. And it's that 90% that is the worst impacted by these sanctions. Unfortunately, that's the case. And uh, if I may say like a last sentence, I see that the level of awareness about the impact of sanctions is enormously low. People, lots of people believe that uh, sanctions are not affecting regular people. They are only affected those design directly designated. So I would really appreciate if people would start reading the reports which I produce. I do my best to verify all facts. And I need to say that in the situation of Syria, I didn't meet a single interlocutor who said that, no, we do not observe the impact of sanctions. They all sound in a one voice, in unified voice. And they all said, please give us back the hope. I will stop here. Thank you very much. Elena Dohan is the UN Special Rapporteur on Unilateral Coercive Measures and Human Rights. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure.